0: It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state-of-the-art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs by the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. Hi again, everyone. This week, part one of a two-part chat with George Thomas at Air Support BMW in Kitchener, Ontario. Air Support BMW is the largest full-service shop in Canada, exclusively servicing vintage BMW motorcycles. I took that line from the webpage. George came to this work as an airhead mechanic a bit later in his career path. He's had a very interesting and varied career prior to opening Air Support. That's something we'll dig into a little bit later in the program. You can learn more about George and his shop, airsupportbmw.com. Or, George has an Instagram feed he updates frequently, the good, bad, and ugly, so to speak, of things that happen at the shop there, so you might wanna put some eyes on that as well. You've heard me talking about the Survivor Series for a while now, and thanks to everyone for your submissions. Keep those coming. The first one of these is in the latest edition of the BMW Owner's News. That's the July 2023 edition. The bike featured is a 1978 Gold R100 RS I purchased a few years back. We've talked about that on the show on more than one occasion. There's a wonderful backstory to this bike, but it became even more interesting with the photo I found this past December. So if you're an MOA member, look for this edition of the Survivor Series in the July 2023 MOA owner's news. If you're not an MOA member, we'll be featuring and posting the Survivor Series on our soon-to-be released website. Yes, I've been talking about it ad nauseum, but it is on the way. We're working on it as we speak. The Survivor Series will also be a bi-monthly feature in the BMW MOA owner's news. So thanks to Ted Moyer and the crew at the MOA for supporting our efforts with that. Reminder, once again, if you have an original paint, unrestored 247, we want to know about it. Drop us a line, airheads247 at hotmail.com, or send us a note with whatever else is on your mind. Because of some scheduling issues, William Plam, he's not here with us this week. However, he will return during part two of our visit with George next time. All right, so off we go. George Thomas of Air Support BMW on the Airhead 247 podcast. We're on the phone with George Thomas from Air Support BMW. And George, I think I'm pronouncing the name of the town correctly. uh, Kitchener, Ontario?
1: Yeah, that's right. Kitchener, Ontario.
0: Okay, a little... Kitchener, so a little E-N-E-R Kitchener, on there. yeah. Okay.
1: Kitchen with an er.
0: <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Uh, all right. So first off, I want to say I love the name of your shop, Air Support. Very creative. Um, makes, makes you think of a lot of different things. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, I want to start out by asking you, first off, uh, are you in the shop now? And if so, what are you working on? What's on the lifts right now?
1: Yeah, I'm in the shop right now. Uh, on the lift right now, is uh, I've got a few things on the go here. I've got a 1965 R60-2 in Dover White undergoing a complete restoration. I've got a 67 R69-S undergoing a functional restoration. I've got an early 50s R25-3 undergoing kind of uh, in between the two of those things. Um, a couple of early R75-5s in for deeper service, uh, things like gearboxes and forks. Uh, in addition to just regular tuning and oil. A couple of engine overhauls, those get mailed to me all the time in crates, and I and then I overhaul them and ship them home. And then a whole bunch of top ends like uh, cylinder heads and um, and bores to to redo the pistons and bores on those.
0: All right, so you're busy twisting wrenches. Are you a uh, one-man operation, or do you have some other folks helping you out?
1: I've got two part-time guys right now, um, and then them myself, yeah. Now
0: is, let me, let me ask you, I mean, you say you've got part-time guys, have they been with you for a while? Do you find it's difficult finding good, uh, experienced, or good help uh, in this kind of industry and profession?
1: Personally, in the location I'm in, I find it extremely difficult to find yeah. not only competent people but also people with the passion um, to want to do the kind of work that we do here. and. um the kind of passion that I want to go into the the end result, um, but above all, the competencies an issue. Also, it's quite an investment of time and energy to learn. Like I, I have no issue teaching people, um, but it does take a lot of you know capacity for somebody to, somebody to learn. My oldest son, who's now 23, was actually here for about a year, and he was excellent. He was he was really coming up the curve well. Um, unfortunately, it just wasn't something he wanted to do as a career so he moved on to other things but that, that was a guy who had the passion and and was building the skills so that's what i need more young guys like that
0: yeah did um well good for you i guess you didn't force force your son into into doing it uh he's got other interests to pursue did you, Do you think he might come back around to it or you're just letting that ship sail as it as it should
1: yeah, I mean, I, I think he'll come around to it. He still he still enjoys motorcycles. He still enjoys doing those things with me. But um, the, the as a business thing is not as interesting. He he went on to more of a a bit of a corporate job, and then now he's switching maybe to to go into the uh, the military. So that's quite a shift. So yeah, maybe when he's done with all that, he'll come back. But he does help me out uh, sometimes. It's just not he was really good at being like I could I could say go take out that gearbox, and and I and he would just go take it out. I didn't have to ask. He didn't have to ask me any questions, I should say.
0: Did, and did uh, did you did you pay him, or what? He just was he free labor?
1: <laughs> Good question. He he often uh, he often wonders the same thing. He, uh, so I, I paid him, but I didn't give him the money. Uh, he at the time uh, when he was doing this was he was probably twenty one. He had taken a, a shine to uh, you know sports cars and hot rods and other things like that. So what I did is I he'd work here, and I'd put money aside for him to put into his. I call it his hot rod fund. So I kept a little box at home with money in it, and then whenever he wanted to buy something stupid, as young boys want to do, yeah. you know, we would talk about it and then spring the cash. And, you know, what he ended up buying is a, is a 2000 Porsche Boxster, so he did all right in the end. Uh, he had a really great summer with that, a couple summers, I guess, and then eventually moved on from that. But but that's that was what kind of helped him get there, was um, helping me out in the shop and, and working away at, at that. A bit of equity, sweat equity. <laughs>
0: Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. So, Obviously, you were sort of his introduction uh, into motorcycles and motorsports. What about yours? Uh, Was your dad into that, or how did you fall into it uh, as a kid?
1: Yeah, no, my dad uh, has all thumbs, and he's he's terrible uh, mechanically. It was my brother who got me into uh, cars. My brother's a huge gearhead and a, a really talented mechanic, a really talented mechanical mind. And I was always that kid. I'm six years or seven years younger than him, and I was always holding the damn flashlight and getting the wrenches. But, uh, so I had a lot of um, just kind of osmosis with hot rods and, and cars and whatnot. I never got on the motorcycles because um, I just, that just wasn't something that we were into as kids. But then flash forward many years later, and uh, I'm married with kids, and I can't afford a, you know, a hot rod or a muscle car. So I thought, what's what you know? What's more affordable? <laughs> I got on the bikes because I thought it was a more affordable way to still express my mechanical, you know, creativity sure. uh, through automotive. So, and I ended up getting uh, a 1967 Honda 175. I picked it out of a scrap heap, got it for free. And you know, this this isn't a this isn't a Honda podcast, but we we, we all know the Honda story. You know, sure. yeah. I did a little, a little bit of wiring, put some gas in it third kick it started like just unbelievable uh, engineering and that's what got me hooked was like wow this thing is, is incredible so I restored that uh, rode that little Honda for a couple of years it was just super fun and then got up into another bigger Honda I think it was a GL500 which I loved another great engineered bike but then there was this oh, this haunting uh, local um, classified ad for a, for a, a BMW R80 and it, it the ad stayed up forever and ever, and I just couldn't understand <laughs> why. So I thought, well, I'll give the guy a call.
0: Now let me and, let uh, me jump in. So now, yeah, what sure. th- What year was this, and was it like an old school ad? You just see it in the paper all the time, or what?
1: Well, so um, it wasn't an ad. It was uh, this is in the mid two thousands, and uh, and the bike was in nineteen eighty seven, uh, and the ad. I don't know if you guys have Kijiji down there, but it'd be similar to Craigslist. Sure, yeah. That, that kind of thing yeah so it was a Kijiji ad it was up forever and the price was reasonable and I couldn't understand why it was still for sale so I called the guy or tried to call the guy and I understood why it was still for sale he was just impossible to reach so I let it go and let it go and let it go cut to the end I finally got to the to, to meet this fellow and uh do you want to hear the story of how I got my I do
0: here? yeah of course
1: yeah, okay, yeah, because it's a long one. Well, it could be a long one. I'll try and cut it short. No, that's good. Anyway, I finally meet the guy, and sure enough, it's a BMW R80 um, with all the luggage and everything on it, um, European bars. It was really nice. And, uh, you know, I didn't really know much about BMWs, other than it was all motorcyclists, I think, have a certain respect for them. Even Harley guys will, will tell you they have respect for BMWs, I don't think it always goes the other way. So um, that's why I was looking at this bike. I thought, wow, if I could, if I could get into a Beamer from a, from a Honda, that'd be great. So I meet him. He's a bit of a weirdo, a bit crusty. Didn't really want me to, didn't want to show me the bike. He's was just like, you know, there it is kind of thing. Didn't want to start it up. Wouldn't let me ride it. I'm like, what kind of,
2: what kind of <laughs> yeah,
1: ship is this? Yeah. yeah like what, what's going on? Do you want to sell it or not? So I kind of, I kind of walked away from it, and I said, like, if I can't ride it and I can't hear it, I'm like, well, I can't buy it. So he reluctantly fired it up, and then he said, okay, listen, I'm not going to let you ride it, but you can follow me on your bike, and we'll go out for a ride in the country, and you can just watch me ride it. I'm like, all right, well,
2: at
1: least i got a, a, a ride in the country out of this. Oh, man, So we, we do that. We go we go north and into the hills and uh, ride around. It was a nice ride. And then he pulled over. He must have felt suddenly, you know, to do this, and pulled over and said, "Here, you. You let's switch bikes, and you can ride the bike for a little, ride the BMW for a little bit."
0: I mean, man, this guy is putting you through the ringer on this sale.
1: Uh, honestly, he really, you know, he didn't want to sell it. The yeah. bottom line is, it was a family member to him, like it is to a lot of us. Sure, he really just didn't want to sell it. He, he, in the end, I'll cut to the, the, the punchline. He was going through a divorce, and he had to sell it. Oh, yuck! Okay, he was just making it difficult for all of us because he just didn't want to. Yeah. So, you know, anyway, I got on this bike, and I'd never been on a BMW before, and once I figured out, like, I looked down, and I'm like, where the hell are my feet? They're underneath the carburetors. Are those carburetors? <laughs> like, what the hell? Like, I just couldn't reconcile what was going on after just being on a Honda, so I get the bike going, and, and uh didn't take me much more than a few kilometers that I just sort of, I bonded with this BMW. Like, I just couldn't believe, like, First of all, the power curve was so foreign to me compared to the Honda Hondas you have to rev the crap out of. Um, this thing had had torque all the way down, right? You know, you know the story. Yeah. What I loved the most was was the handling. I just I just remember thinking, if I just think right, it goes right. If I think left, it goes left. Like it just did everything. It was like it was like an extension of my body. And so he let me ride it actually for probably forty five minutes or so. We went for a bit of a ride and wow. came back and. We switched bikes back again, and, and honestly, Darren, I, I I got back on my Honda and I rode it back home, which was maybe another you know, 20 kilometers. I, I parked that Honda and I never rode it again. I was, <laughs> believe I was, it. I was absolutely so hooked. Yeah, yeah, uh, I, I was believe so it. Hooked.
0: So obviously, yeah. this I mean, guy he had the motorcycle, he had the R80 uh, tuned, running quite well. Um, what? Uh, so you said it was an 87, obviously a monolever uh, was black and with red stripes, black with white. I'm trying to remember some of the colors. Yeah.
1: It was that red, that red color they had that year, the Colorado red metallic, I think. Okay. Yeah. 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 So the bike, the bike was in pretty good shape. It was actually, um, maybe two or three owners before me and had all kinds of service records. But, you know, a funny thing about that, that purchasing decision of mine though, was it had 92,000 kilometers on the odometer. And, uh, and I thought that was just an astronomical number. And so, because, you know, on a Honda, 92,000 kilometers, the thing would be basically scrapped for the most part. So I, w- I remember going on some forums like the MOA and others and asking around and, and people saying, oh, God, no, that's, <laughs> that's nothing. And, you know, now I, I laugh because I agree, like, 92,000 is nothing. But at the time, I remember thinking, geez, how does a bike get 92,000 kilometers on it? <laughs> Yeah,
0: no kidding. Wow, that's pretty amazing. So it was uh, a, a standard uh, sort of naked setup on the bike. Uh, no, no fairing, no s fairing or anything like that.
1: Nothing. No, it was uh, optioned out as a European bike with the flat bars, heated grips,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but otherwise bone stock.
0: Did it have um, uh, yeah, the original? Did it have the dash pad with the like the with the heated grip uh, on off switch on there? The little rubber dash pad in the center console. Yep. Okay.
1: That's right, and then and then it had the little cutout for the uh, hazard light, mm-hmm. which I which I then added on. I put that in there.
0: Now this begs the question: What do you still have it? And if not, what what was the fate of that bike?
1: No, I still have it. It's uh, my first love, and and I still have it. And I've I've toured it extensively. Um, did a lot of maintenance on it, of course, because they they need that, and that's where I started to cut my teeth on on. Um, on the BMW, uh, stewardship idea. You know, I don't think we own them. I think we just kind of, uh, borrow them for a while. Yeah. And, and that's why they last so long because people really do love them. Like members of the family. And my ex-wife used to, used to kind of complain that this motorcycle was like my mistress because I,
0: what do you, <laughs> you know, mean? What do you mean? Thing? Like, <laughs> there's no like about it. <laughs>
1: exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And she she even gave her the name Brigitte, which we still call her.
0: Interesting. So uh what's the current mileage on that thing? And you said it's in good running order?
1: Yeah, it's in good running order. The current mileage, oh geez, I'd have to go look, but it's uh It's flipped over, obviously. The, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Probably hundred and thirty thousand kilometers now. Wow.
0: And so what um what major service parts replacement. I mean, you know, did you have to dig into the bottom end on that uh, with all that mileage on there? Or, you know, what, let me, let me rephrase that maybe. What surprised you about what lasted and what didn't last with the bike that high mileage?
1: Well, I mean, the whole thing, I mean, so when I took over, I had, when I took over that ownership of that bike, I did have to do some maintenance. Like I did uh, the front brakes, I think. And I did, obviously all the fluids and the steering head bearing. Um, and that's what surprised me that it took so little to get certified and licensed on the road. And, and to answer your first question, no, I've done nothing to the bottom end on that thing. I don't think I've even done the timing chain, nothing. So it's it's actually, I think it's overdue for those things now. Wow. I know. I know. But well, that surprised me like how, again, like just how long lives and, and how great performing this bike still was. So the only thing that they really did was, Carburetor maintenance uh, like uh, rebuilding I did have the gearbox rebuilt at one point um, before I myself was was doing them Um, yeah not much really honestly not much at all and it's kind of funny because um, now I tend to over maintain my bikes my other bikes. And I laugh at that one because I maintain it the least and it seems to always run the best. So, <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: that, that's interesting, George, because, you know, I know uh, a lot of mechanics who have shops like you and they fall into the classic the cobbler shoes are never repaired category where. Yeah. Their bikes. Oh yeah, I'm. A, I got to get around to that. Or yeah, I've been meaning to do this or meaning to do that. Uh, you may have. You may have a project or two like that. I don't want to misrepresent uh, what's going on there, but uh, it's good to know. You know, a bike like that, you're you're on top of it and keep it in good running order.
1: For sure. Yeah. And um, so yeah, I, I try and tour a bike a year. Uh, that bike a lot of tours, and every every time I move before a, a big trip like 10 or 15 days you know into the northeast of the United States we like to go a lot to. um I'll do a full maintenance and I'll just go crazy with it and, and maintain the crap out of it um so yeah absolutely Darren I've got projects on the go I've got I think I've got 13 personal bikes in my collection they're not all pristine they're not all where I want them to be um some of them have just are just going to always be collectible uh but yeah I do try to keep at least two of them in, in really good necks so that I could hop on and ride.
0: Good for you. One of the reasons so many airheads are still on the road today is because of great parts suppliers and enthusiasts like Boxer 2 Valve. William and Edward Plam at Boxer 2 Valve have years of experience with the 247 Airhead dating back to their first repair shop and dealership in the early 1980s. Boxer 2 Valve stocks and sources only premium parts and tools, so no need to worry if you're getting a cheap pattern or shortcut part. They simply don't carry them. Boxer 2 Valve has extensively researched which parts are correct for your motorcycle. Just enter your year and model and you'll see only the parts that fit your bike. That takes the guesswork out of the ordering process. Real-time stock information that is also available, so no need to guess what may be on back order that could delay your project. Also, if you're digging into a repair for the first time, be sure to check out Boxer Two Valve's video repair series. These cover both twin shock and post-81 models and are great tutorials that go step-by-step through a variety of repairs and parts replacement procedures. The video series is a great workshop companion one I've used many times over the years. So, for all your airhead parts needs, Boxer2Valve.com. That's the number two, Boxer2Valve.com. Now back to our conversation with George at Air Support BMW. So, um, let's talk a little bit about how Air Support started and how it evolved, I guess. And uh, I did a you know a little bit of research. You've got a neat video on your website that kind of tells the brief story of uh, what you do and how it's come about. So, initially, you started out with a thing called Airhead Parts Online. So, that uh, how did how did buying that R eighty uh, manifest itself into the creation of the first genesis the first genesis of Air Support uh, back then, which I guess was the parts. Uh, supplier.
1: Yeah, well, you, you said it actually perfectly. That's the purchasing of that first BMW manifested itself into the parts business because I was suddenly a BMW motorcycle owner and found myself really cut off from the supply chain. You know, having a Honda, I was pretty impressed with the the Honda supply chain. I could walk into any dealer and get a and get parts for bikes all the way into the '70s. I thought that was pretty impressive. When I got the Beamer, I, I just was lost. I didn't know where to go. Of course, we had local dealers, and I did go to them, but found them quite costly. So, what happened? It kind of evolved over time, but also very quickly. Um, I went to I went to a tech day, an, Air, an ABC Airhead Beamers Club tech day up here in Ontario. And two things happened. First of all, I mean, I found my tribe. I'm like, oh God, there's more people like me that think like this with with great bikes. And, and the second thing was they all we all had the same kind of campfire story of man, it's so expensive to find parts and I can't get parts and yada, yada. They're so expensive to come in from the States or whatever. So I, I don't know what I was thinking, what craziness can happen, but I thought I would start importing parts for the group um, and sort of help hedge that that, that pent-up need. Um, so I did. And um, I opened up a, a web store um, called areaheadpartsonline.com, tried to stock as much maintenance stuff and common things as I could think of. I got a lot of the recipe wrong at first cause I really wasn't, you know, I hadn't been in the business for more than 10 minutes, but, um, but eventually I figured it out and I had a pretty, I think I had a pretty good representation of what people wanted and needed to maintain their bikes as an alternative to the dealer. I couldn't possibly carry everything, but I tried to carry, you know, what, what the average guy would need.
0: All right. So a couple follow-ups there. So, if uh, you say parts were difficult to get and they were expensive, so from somebody down here in Arkansas, I mean I'm not terribly far from you uh, in, the, in the ways of the world, why the big discrepancy of what we're able to access here in the States availability and, and price-wise versus what you were having to deal with uh, in Ontario?
1: Yeah, great question. And I think it's a couple things. I'm only guessing at some of these, but I think it's first of all, way, way, way more bikes went to the states than came to Canada. So you automatically have even a bigger use market to, um, to, 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 to deal with. Um, second thing is, I don't know if it happened in the states, but up here in Canada, a lot of the motorcycle dealerships were forced to collapse into car dealerships, BMW car dealerships as well, and so the. The motorcycle brand became kind of second-class citizens, and the dealers didn't really put a lot of effort into their, um, their stock or their – they could always order you. Like, the, the, I'll have to clarify. They could always order everything for you, but it was three weeks out of Germany, and then you'd get it. Yeah, right?
0: so, and I imagine it, matters, it was it an afterthought uh, to whoever was kind of helping you um you know like okay yeah you know what's the part number you know and they probably have no idea if it's correct or yeah.
1: you know oh god yeah yeah, yeah. so that's the the third thing the the thing I wasn't going to mention but you brought it up is that another one of the campfire stories was and forgive me BMW dealers in Ontario who are listening but <laughs> you know we weren't we weren't we weren't collectively terribly impressed with the service that we were being given um at the time i'm sure it's different now i don't i don't you know i don't really keep tabs on that but at the time it was it wasn't. It wasn't great, and that was a common story. So, so yeah, I think all those things, and you know, just the fact that um, the U.S. has such a bigger base and probably a lot more dealerships. And you know, another really interesting logistical thing that you have the advantage in the states is um, your shipping is so cheap.
0: Well, know, not an, not anymore.
1: Oh, okay. Well, at the time it was, you know, you, you could order something and get it in a couple of days for a few bucks. Yeah. In Canada, everything seems to be fifty bucks in, in five days.
0: So. Yeah, well, that uh, the, the uh, pandemic put a put a halt to the affordable shipping, uh, especially with the well with everything. Our postal service here, yeah. U.S. Postal Service, FedEx, UPS, you know, uh, those uh, what used to be relatively affordable services post pandemic, it's ridiculous. Uh, I buy and sell used parts. As a hobbyist, not as a business, but I do it fre- frequently enough where they know me at the at the post office, and yeah, right. uh, yeah. yeah and the the prices have just gone through the roof. Uh, so sadly, that's that's not the case here anymore, and I, I don't see it returning to the days of affordability. But
1: um, no, yeah, you're right. That, that that's here now too. But yeah. I mean, ten, fifteen years ago, there was a different story. Yeah, where big was, time. Was,
0: yeah, and better, and I guess yeah. it was the same uh, with used parts as well. Uh, for especially for older bikes, some, you're not always going to be able to find a brand new part, uh, especially if you're just if you're having to go through a dealer. Uh, so used parts, I can imagine, were difficult. Now, ba- now let's put a time frame on this. So airhead parts online started. Uh, you started doing this in earnest around what year?
1: I was trying to think of that. I think it was around 2010, 10, 2011, something like that.
0: Okay, well that's relatively recent. It is, yeah. Okay. So were yep. were you then looking to uh, Germany, uh, I guess, to order a lot of stuff, or maybe even a supplier like Moto Bins or Siebenrock? Siebenrock? Did you start? Did,
1: did you? Yeah, well, I became a, I immediately became a Siebenrock dealer. Yeah. I started dealing with them. Um, for a lot of my big stock, I'd order big, big orders, and they give me a pretty decent discount. Um, the and then uh, there was Salas moto bins um mm-hmm. uh, you know all the big players are still there and yeah. a few that have gone under a few that have disappeared, but but you know the same the, the players we all know i started importing from them and, and most of them gave me good discounts um again i was i wasn't trying to say make a lot of money just was trying to pass it on to the to the local group but here's the here's the funny here's the funny kind of extension to that story is mm-hmm. i did all this i set this all up I didn't really sell a lot of stuff to Ontario people Uh, The local (laughs) didn't didn't really uh, resonate with it. And, um, I ended up getting a lot of business out of the States, which is really ironic. And a lot of business out of Western Canada. I got business out of Ontario, but it wasn't, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be these 16 to 20 guys, but it wasn't, um, for better or for worse. Right.
0: Interesting. So, um, Guys in BC were buying stuff.
1: Um, yeah, you yeah, BC has the same problem as Ontario, where there were there used to be some really, really good um, dealers and independents out there. I won't name any names, but just like in Ontario, where there were good independents, they've they've all gone under or aren't good anymore because they've changed hands or whatever. Yeah. So I was getting a lot of business out of there as well. I'm currently getting a lot of business out of there for service work as well.
0: Interesting. So, again, I'm going to allude to the uh, video that's on your website. I uh, encourage people to check that out. You've got a, uh, a fun website to click through. Uh, you talked about how Airhead Parts Online then transformed into becoming a full-service shop because you were buying parts, and then all of a sudden you'd have – let's say, uh, you know, some tubes and tires, or you'd have, uh, you know, a top-end kit or whatever, and somebody would say, hey, can you put this on for me? Uh, it was right. really pra- a practical uh, need uh, that, that, that transformed you into a, a service shop. Is that a fair way to say it?
1: Exactly. And, you know, I don't know if I say it in the video, I don't remember what I said, but um, I was doing it for free. Like, I was, I was, again, thinking like I was in some sort of club, some sort of big international club, and I thought it was my my civic duty to install <laughs> them you know, and teach and teach them how to do it. Yeah. And then one day, one day a guy, because all my customers became friends, and that still happens. Um, but one day, one other day, one day one of these guys slipped me 50 bucks. As a thank you. I'm like, wait a minute. So then uh, it was to do a top end uh, reseal. So I thought that was great, really nice of them. And then the next. Week, a guy called me and said, "How much to do a top-end resale?" And I thought, "Geez, I just got fifty bucks. And didn't even ask for it." I'm gonna, how about one hundred and fifty? He's like, "Yeah, sure." And so that was sort of like when I realized, "Holy shit, people will pay money for this!"
0: Wow, and wow, and uh, is that uh, was that a fair price? I mean, I don't even know. I'm trying to think shop yeah, hours. That was, that
1: was no, that was that was absolutely dirt cheap. Yeah, right. Either. And and I mean, so I just again, I thought. I'm giving to the community. They're giving me a little bit. You know, the one guy gave me some money and offered to buy me pizza, so I thought that was pretty good one time. <laughs> so it just started to build upon there. I started to add more and more value, whether it was pizza or beer or whatever. But you know, the, what the real tipping point was, so, so, so like people were, were, I was doing this for lots of people and pretty cheap, but the real tipping point was I got a call one time from a guy, because uh, by that time I was doing gearboxes and carburetors and all kinds of stuff on the bench. And, uh, but local stuff, nobody was really mailing stuff in yet. And another got a call from a guy who says, Hey, can you do my gearbox? I'm like, absolutely. Sure. He says, okay, I'll drop it off. I'll drop it off in a couple of days, which was pretty common. Well, one day, a 20, 25 foot or whatever the hell they are, a straight truck pulls up and the, the back door rolls up and it's a whole motorcycle. It's a whole, you know, early eighties R100 slash seven, um, and, he's, and I'm like, what? Like, well, that's, the, that's the gearbox. I'm like, oh, <laughs> I got it.
2: So
1: that sort of like accelerated that whole curve of like, well, now I have to take on whole bikes. And yeah, stuff. that led to me subletting some some bigger space and blah 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 blah. And next thing you know, it just total word of mouth because I didn't do a lot of advertising. I still I do no advertising now. Um, bikes just started showing up.
0: Wow. So, uh, Eric, so you had the parts. Business going slowly, turning into a full service shop. Did you have uh, another part time, full time job, a different career, or how how was that? How was that? How were you balancing other things in life there?
1: Yeah, great question. So I've always this has always been a side hustle. Uh, I've always had a a career. I was in uh, aerospace and uh, robotics um, at at those times, and where this energy came from. So i work all day and then I would work until, you know, midnight, one o'clock at the shop. Uh, I was going through a divorce at the time and that really propelled, like there's just so much energy behind yes. that. It propelled that whole side of the business and that's really what fueled it for the first long, long time. And, but then but then the business kind of took on, the, the service business took on this whole life of its own. Uh, so I still had this duality of having a, a career and and a passion on the side. I did do in 2022, so last year I did work here full-time in the shop uh, for a number of reasons. A, I was switching, uh, you know, career A to career B, but also I wanted a break from, from, I'm 50 years old, I'm getting ready to, I was experimenting with early retirement, didn't work out, but um, I'm just too fidgety, I just, I can't sit still. So, um, yeah, I no, I've always had a, a full-time job, and this has been my side hustle, but I, you know, I get a lot of warnings from people who have kind of done similar things to me. That being opening up a business that's also your passion. Yeah, a lot of a lot of people warn me like you're you're gonna burn yourself out. You're gonna hate motorcycles. You're gonna hate people. Like <laughs> so I've been listening to that and and trying to like balance um, and make sure that doesn't happen. Right? Because I do want to eventually retire and do this as a casual retirement job.
0: It hasn't happened yet. You're saying.
1: Well, it didn't because when I did it last year full time, I could see the wisdom behind those words if "you're going to burn yourself out, you're going to kill the passion" because it was happening. It was starting to be like this is a job. I'm not enjoying it. I, I enjoy aspects of it, but it wasn't. It wasn't as fun. So, um, and then you know the phone rang and I got a really great great offer for to go back into my field and, and away I go.
0: Wow, interesting. So, yeah, you brought up a good point. I mean, not to get too much on the, on the side note here, but anybody who's been through a divorce knows uh, you do have a lot of time on your hands when you suddenly find yourself uh, without a partner, uh, maybe that you've had for a while. And so what a great, what a great thing to be able to th- sort of throw your energy uh, into, uh, sort of focus that, uh, that, pe- uh, that energy that needs to go somewhere. Uh, and
1: it, yeah, but no, it, it was, it was definitely very cathartic for me. Yeah. To, like staying up till one in the morning programming my website, you know, right. I had to learn how to do that overnight kind of thing because I couldn't afford to pay somebody at the time. And, and yeah, so you're right. It was, it was, you know, I hate to say I was lucky, but in a lot of ways I used the energy wisely. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, we'll say thanks to your ex-wife then uh, for providing that yeah. <laughs> opportunity. Appreciate sure, it. Listening. Yeah. <laughs> um, Okay. uh, Let's see. Yeah. So, all right. I'm just looking over my questions list here. So that answers that. Uh, You're in between, you talked to this a little bit, uh, Kitchener, Ontario. So you're in between Detroit and uh, Toronto, uh, Lake Erie's around there. So you mentioned back when you started, you had a mix of clientele uh, from the Canadian side and U.S. customers. Uh, what's the, what's the status on that now?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, it's, it's gotten even more, um, uh, mixed. Um, I do get a lot of local business. There's no doubt about it. Uh, but I get a lot of work out of the States, which really, really shocks me. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm actually very flattered and proud of that at the same time, because I've had conversations with people. I, for instance, I talked to a guy in Utah a few weeks ago and I said, look like you're in you're in utah and i'm in ontario you don't you know you could probably find other options sure he said yeah but I've he said yeah but i been following you on instagram for years i love your work i love your vibe i want you to build my engine I'm like okay you know that's a customer i want to work with right there right? yeah great i get a lot of work i get a lot of work out of texas uh california all through the northeast and these are all places that have really well established good shops so yeah. i'm very flattered that people want to work with me um uh, in addition, I get quite a bit of work out of the west, uh, Western Canada, for the reasons I mentioned before. Uh, there's just there's just nobody out there doing it really at, at this level. Um, I don't get a lot of work out of Quebec and Eastern Canada. I don't know why. I think there's I think there's other shops there, and I think they get a lot of work done um, by the the shops in the Northeast the United States. That would make sense. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Proximity. Yeah.
0: Yep there's a lot of uh, a lot of branches up that way too so I, I'm yep. just, just curious then uh, I, I've been to Canada a couple times but not, not enough to really know a whole lot about it uh, other than to say I'm curious how does the border complicate commerce with U.S. customers uh, or if you're selling a motorcycle uh, between borders is it a complicated thing to do?
1: No it's not and I have a um, I do sell a lot of motorcycles, by the way. I do yeah. a lot of consignments, and I go back and forth. Uh, it's not as complicated as you think, and it's not as expensive as you think. Um, it can be both of those things, but <laughs> we we really aim for it to not be that. Um, so you know, I have a customs broker uh, that makes it real easy for for both people. Uh, and then on the way back, I you know and I just shipped an engine back to Oklahoma where it took a little bit of extra pushing and shoving but i really work with the the customer end user to help them get through that because i can't do i can't do everything for them but um i try and make it easy but it's not that hard um it's not that expensive
0: and can the scales be tipped one way or the other favorably to a seller or buyer on on one side of the border or does it usually just sort of end up a wash what do you mean price wise
1: well I mean with the u s dollar you guys get a really good deal on uh on my service because you know it just comes out quite a bit cheaper um, and I think it maybe comes out of the wash in terms of then you add on the cost of shipping and stuff maybe maybe that's the extra thirty percent okay but um it, so I'll give you a really I'll give you a really quick case study yeah yeah guy shipped me an engine and he took care of the shipping up uh he paid seventeen hundred bucks. Plus, I paid customs and duties to get it here, so it was like two grand for this thing to get here.
2: Good grief!
1: Wow. But, right. So that's not economical, right? But when I shipped it back, it was maybe four hundred bucks. Huh. So it's just a matter of knowing what to do. Yeah. And, you know, not, nothing against this guy. He, he, he just yeah. Back to put in the crate, went to a shipping company, and they shipped it. He just you know, didn't know, didn't have relationships, didn't know what to say. That kind of thing so sure wow okay but that does but that
0: That does demonstrate the kidding. disparity sending it back for oh, yeah. a third of yeah. the cost
1: yeah for sure and i and then I, I also um always strongly encourage customers in the states to ship by a usps priority because it's way cheaper than going with a ups or a fedex or those kinds of those kinds of companies because they those bigger companies tend to want to gouge everybody and. I mean, You may not love USPS down there, but it's really the most economical. It's not going to get here any faster, like not, not enough to make a difference. Anybody pay yeah. the extra money? Yeah.
0: Well, I could complain about the uh, U.S. Postal Service, but uh, I, I really, I really can't. There. They, considering you know everything that they do, they, you know, I, I'm fine with them. They do a good job. They do a good job.
1: Good. All yeah, right. I agree. I, I, yeah, I agree.
0: We've teamed up with the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America to offer a special membership deal for our listeners. Now, before you think, wait a second, Darren, how much is this going to cost? Let's just stop right here and say it's free. This is a complimentary one-year digital membership for Airhead 247 podcast listeners. The MOA has a goal of adding 200 new members over the next several months. That's a lot. But I think they can reach that goal with our help. By supporting the MOA with this offer, you're also supporting this program. And let's say this again, it is free of charge. Visit 247.bmwmoa.org and complete the online form using the activation code AIRHEAD247. That's easy to remember. You'll receive your free one-year digital membership, and that will give our program Credit for referring you. Or go to the description section of this podcast. We've got a direct link right there. Membership in the MOA offers discounts at hotels, a monthly magazine, great deals on roadside assistance programs, plus a fantastic network of BMW owners that share your passion. All this, plus you're supporting our efforts here with the podcast, bringing you unique insight into the world of the 247 Airhead. That website, once again, for your free one-year digital membership, 247.bmwmoa.org. Use the code AIRHEAD247. Thank you very much for your support. Now back to our conversation with George at Air Support BMW. So, George, here's one thing I've wondered. Um, Again, uh, I'm going to plead some ignorance um a canadian BMW as delivered new uh was that a euro spec bike uh or was it a US spec bike or was it a canadian spec bike when they would come uh to canada new from uh from BMW what what's the deal there
1: yeah just from my own experience of course i've never been a dealer but my understanding was they were euro spec bikes okay um there might have been some particularities that to do with Canada, but I don't think so. I think it was, they were just Euro spec
0: bikes. So yeah, for instance, I remember seeing, just sort of offhand, and it's been a, a minute since I talked to him, but Bob Hennig uh, at Bob's BMW, I think, bought a R100R Classic, one of the last of the airheads. It was a Canadian bike, yep. uh, and he purchased it from Canada. And it was a Euro spec bike, so it had uh, you know larger carburetors on it, uh, and I maybe a Kickstarter. I can't rem- I can't remember exactly, but some of those things you would typically see on a German or a European issue bike are the are the ones you would get in Canada. So I, w- I was just I was just curious. I, that's that's something I've always wondered.
1: Yeah, and and that's true. And then um, I also, but there are a lot of imported U.S. bikes here too. They just made their way up here somehow over the years.
0: I would, I would imagine so. Uh, do you see, you see a mix of both? Um,
1: uh, and, yeah, it, it's probably. I hate to, I hate to put a number to it, but it probably is fifty-fifty.
0: All right, so let's talk a little bit about your location here. Um, you're in what I would say um, a short riding season, weather-wise, uh, but I, I imagine people who live up there and who have lived up there all their lives or have lived up there for a long time can overcome and adapt and uh you know will ride with the fairing uh you know heated gloves snowmobile suits you know that kind of stuff um <laughs> but you've got uh, obviously a longer off season uh up there so just tell me a, a little bit about how that works and how that's might be different for those of us Uh, in the states here. Where I'm at, for instance, in Arkansas, uh, in the Ozark Mountains, we used to have winters with snow, uh, but that's changing, and we really maybe have one month or two months uh, where it might be a little bit too cold to ride, but other than that, here we are February, it was 70 degrees the other day. Uh, and, you know, riding seasons kind of started uh, in earnest for us. So tell me about how Canadians and how you sort of handle that up there.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And you're right, the, the riding season can be short, uh, typically. Um, it's a sliding scale depending on where you are in Ontario, but it's typically, you know, April to October. Uh, and the bookends of those are going to be kind of cold and rainy. So a lot of guys actually um... will have an RT set up for cold weather riding and then they'll put that away when the when the summer comes like the real summer comes and they'll ride whatever their other bike is so so a lot of guys actually have two or more bikes to offset that seasonal those seasonal differences so I, I always thought that was kind of interesting um, another thing i know a lot of my customers do is they ride into the states <laughs> so they'll you know they'll be in april which is typically a pretty cold rainy month here they'll go down to Tennessee and, and kind of extend their season that way by just going into a different, uh, zone. Um, riding gear is absolutely essential. I think anywhere you go, but it, for me personally, when I invested in like really good quality riding and rain gear, my whole world changed for motorcycles. Like I, <laughs> I can ride. imagine. Right. Like suddenly, um, I, I felt so unrestricted in terms of when and where I could ride. The heated grips are a huge help for me, um, but I think I think equipment is probably number one for Canadian riders, especially where I am. And then, um, and then the, this duality of having several motorcycles to you know one with a big fairing, one without to kind of offset because the summers then get hellaciously hot here. Like July and August are unbearable. Um, see, so you, you know, riding behind the fairing on my—I had a K seventy-five for a season, and I—I I couldn't take it because it was just so hot.
0: Yeah, I believe it. Yeah, and I—I've—I've I've, um, I've been roughing it out with a RS uh, for the winter months, and then that will sort of uh, see a little more garage time once we get into May and June here, and then we'll go do an unfaired uh, bike. Uh, in the summer, as you mentioned, so mm-hmm. that's a a great excuse, um, you know, to say, hey, you know, I need a different bike for the winter. Uh, I, I can appreciate absolutely. that.
1: Absolutely, yeah. yeah, absolutely,
0: I can appreciate and then, that.
1: And then, in terms of what it means for the off season, uh, since you asked, um, so it's deceptively short the off season, <laughs> uh, but but I do get a ton of work, obviously, in the winter time. Um, but the beauty of the of the long off-season here is you know, I encourage my customers who know they need maintenance, like deep, deep maintenance, like a gearbox or something like that to give it to me as early as possible in the season or bring me the bike as early as possible in the off-season so I can start to schedule it around other stuff. So you brought up you live in Arkansas and I have other customers that are from, from down in the areas where they don't have a lot of winter I mentioned Texas, Oklahoma when they send me their work I can treat that more urgently and kind of pepper it in amongst the Canadian work because I know my Canadian customers will don't need it right away, whereas a guy from Arkansas does. So I kind of use it to my advantage to to sort of extend my working season, if you, if you will.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That's good to know. Uh, also on your website, uh, you have a neat uh, little section there on – Functional versus total restoration, and I think it's important to differentiate between the two. Um, and you offer both services, obviously. Uh, maybe if you could just talk about uh, how you view each of those, the functional versus total. And, you know, if you had a preference on a personal bike, if, if you were to do one, do you prefer a, a patina, you know, sort of well-worn, well-cared-for bike versus a, a total restoration?
1: Yeah, it's a great question and uh, and the genesis of that of those two differences is is in working with customers and understanding their needs because different people have different wants and needs and I kind of developed this idea of a functional restoration for the people who who really didn't want to lose that patina that that they felt they'd earned on the bike or or that the bike had earned over the years before they got it yet they wanted it to be otherwise you know a really perfect bike underneath. So, so that's pretty obvious. Then I, you know, you you just take off all the stuff that's greasy and grimey, and clean it, but you don't change the paint or anything else, and you you make it you make it a perfect running bike. Um, the the complete restoration is exactly what it sounds like. You know, that's your basic frame off concourse level. If you want, there's different le- levels for that as well that people want. But so, so for me, I, I have I kind of I desire both personally. Like I, I like both of those things. My, the bikes that I ride, I mentioned my R80s. Kind of, a, it's not a rat bike, but it's certainly not pristine. Um, I have an, an R100RT that is pristine, but it's originally pristine. I bought it from the first owner, and I've taken as good a care of it as he has, um, and I like that. You know, and it's so but I, but I also like that I'm maintaining the driveline perfectly. If I had an R sixty nine S or something like that in my stable, I want it to be perfect, Sure. perfectly restored. So, so that's kind of where I'm at. Is you know, in fact, I have an R seventy five slash five, a very early, a very early one. It's I think it's number seven thirty five off the line, so it's quite early. Wow. And I I debated at first, like which which should this be? Should I should I take this down to the frame and and make it a perfect example of of an early bike, or should I honor the fact that it's a good, a good original example of an original bike, and I kind of went. I kind of went with the second one. I, I, I'm leaving it alone. I'm just going to make sure it runs well and, and yada yada. Um, I think it's more honorable to that particular bike, but it's really the customer's choice and budget, because it's a big, big difference in budget. You, you start adding paint and whatnot into that, and, and it just starts to balloon.
0: Yeah, and you, I'm glad you mentioned paint because that's where I wanted to go. Uh, I think there are having done this program now for a little over a year and being involved with the motorcycles as long as I have uh, there there are a number of places who could do a restoration quite well um, the number of guys are, are capable of doing that we're fortunate uh, in in our hobby that there are a lot of people uh, that can do that really George in my mind uh, what it comes down to is th- when you're doing a restoration and the detail is the paint. I mean, that's the first yep. thing you're going to notice on a bike. Uh, so where how, how do you, who do you use? What's your MO on paint? Uh, how, how do you handle that aspect of it? Because that's really the, the defining factor, I think, on, on a, a total restoration bike.
1: Yeah, so first of all, I'm just going to agree with you. I mean, I, I think that if you were to spend... Some number let's just call it twenty to thirty thousand dollars on a restoration and and it doesn't look perfect and by perfect, I mean, like it did from the factory, but new you you have to yeah you're really doing yourself a disservice and yeah. yet I see it all the time because there's there's you know a lot of uh, there's a big difference in abilities between painters and stripers, um, so yeah, you kind of get what you pay for as well so I, I find it sad sometimes I see bikes come in where. A guy has obviously spent uh, a lot of time, if not money, but certainly the time to get a bike. You know, maybe uh, maybe it was a basket case, and they they rebuilt it in their their basement lovingly for five years, and then they put it on the road. But they were too cheap, and not I even mean, they were cheap. Wrong, but they didn't they didn't invest in the in the paintwork, and and it looks like crap. And. I've no seen, matter how great the bike, yeah. no matter how, bike, how great the bike might run, or or what a great story that was that he he saved it from the wrecker, it still looks like crap. So yeah, but it, it's always the owner's choice, right? Yeah,
0: that's a good point. Uh, I, but it, but I like, I've seen a few of those three. too. I mean, the R90s is yeah. the is the easiest one to really get off the tracks, off the rails, and have things go awry. Uh, if you try to skimp on the on the paint uh, and don't have it done correctly, and then the same and the same thing with pinstriping, uh, or yeah. get or or really going far off of the color palette. Um, there's nothing. I mean, again, this is all personal opinion, but there's nothing wrong with a non factory color, of course. Uh, but, yeah. but boy, sometimes you just see some really whacked out. Paint jobs, and and then you see somebody try. There was, may I hope this person isn't listening, but somebody had a '90s uh, for sale here recently. Great job, mechanical restoration. Uh, bike was really well put together. They painted it like a f- uh, metallic fuchsia pink. Now, let's just be honest. You're going to have a hard time finding a buyer at top dollar on that. Only if. You find the one person who wants a R90S in hot metallic fuchsia pink, and so I mean, there's a great example of even with a great paint job, you really go off the map on the on the color, and all of a sudden, man, <laughs> you got a lot of head scratching going on there.
1: Well, yeah, I mean that's a whole identity issue right there. Yeah, um, you know, my my point of view is it's an R90S. It should be an R90S and not something different. And I'll tell you the inverse of that story. I had a customer. I have a customer. Who bought a R60/6 naked bike, and I did some service on it. He decided he wanted it to be to have an R uh, have an S fairing on it, uh, and he wanted a smoke paint job. And I said, "Well, I'm not going to do that because <laughs> then people are going to think that it's I'm faking an R90S yeah. I'm not do that because that, we have an identity problem now, don't we? Yeah.
2: I'm
1: not I, I don't. I'm not saying it's fraudulent, but it kind of is. Yeah. So, so this is what's great about my customers and I, like I keep saying they, they tend to become my friends uh, certainly they become very we become very familiar and so he said well what would you do I said well do you trust me he said yes so I don't know if you saw this on my website or on Instagram but I did a instead of um, silver smoke I did Monza Blue with the smoke oh okay no and, I didn't see that No, it looks, it looks it looks amazing and it's and people look at it and go, because the smoke, the smoke job is perfect. It looks like the factory did it, but it's in the wrong colors. But it should be in the wrong colors. I mean, it's not fuchsia. It's its a respectable, at least it's Monza Blue, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it really catches your eye because it's its its gorgeous, but you don't know why it's gorgeous and why it's different. And you, you stop and sort of look at it and think. But it's because the quality's there. I mean, I've seen a lot of really crappy R90s, Smoke jobs, yeah. Uh, that just, like you said, you, you can see them from forty-five feet away, and they're just hideous. And you wonder why did you bother? Yeah, yeah.
0: It, it, it's it's disappointing. Uh, one one follow-up story I want to mention about that, where sometimes a mechanic will step in uh, for a customer and and put the brakes on things. Years ago, um, I think it was probably a buddy of mine's bike. Uh, was at our friend's shop, and when I lived in Memphis, Leo Goff and folks who have listened to the podcast will uh, be familiar with Leo. But he had put on the top of his uh, carburetors uh, on the on the little round uh, a little BMW roundel. You know, I think Bob sells yeah. Bob's BMW sells them, and he put it there on the carb top. And I think he had bought them and put them on there maybe a week or two before taking it to Leo. And when he got the bike back, they were gone, and he said, he asked him, he said, well, where did those go? And he sa- and Leo just said, you don't need those on there. <laughs> he just took them That's off. Hilarious.
1: That's <laughs> hilarious. I mean, I, I'm not quite that, that brave. That no. kind of you know, I know I know where he's coming from. Yeah,
0: it was just funny. We got we got a laugh out of that. Uh, all right, I want to ask uh, two questions.
1: Well, I want to I answer the paint question. You didn't, yes. I didn't answer your paint question. Yeah, so who does yeah. the paint? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, well, I can't tell you. I'd have, to, I'd have to kill everybody on the podcast. But but what you what the people need to know is <laughs> everything I do, I, I do everything in house as much as possible, and we'll get to that maybe in a minute in okay. terms of my ability. Paint is not something I can or want to do. And there's people that have spent their whole lives perfecting that craft. So why would I even try, right? So I've found, I found a couple good painters over the years. I've worked with different ones. I have a really, really good one now the point I want to make here is it's because I make it a point to have a relationship with that shop, with that person, with that owner, with the guy actually painting so that they completely understand what we're doing, what they're doing, why it's important. Right. And, and it makes a huge difference in the, in the final product. Trust me. Um, So, so that's kind of my story on paint is it's done locally by a really great shop and The reason it's done well is because they care, because I care. So customers need to know that. The second thing is the striping. Um, Same thing. I'm never going to learn how to stripe as well as somebody who's been doing it for 40 years. So I found a guy who can hand stripe. I call him up. He comes to my shop, does it right in front of me, so I know it's legit. Um, That's not why he does it in front of me, but I'm just saying because I see it all the time. Um, and that's an incredible. If you've never seen hand striping, I'm sure you have. But if you've never seen somebody actually in the act of it, it, it it's it's just mesmerizing to watch. It is.
0: So he's so he's doing it with uh with the fat brush and the thin brush and the yep. the whole nine yeah, yards
1: really. Wow, yep. cool. And, and it's incredible. And and you know I always have one or two reference bikes um, on hand for them, yes. for him to look at and make sure that they're as close to. The factory as possible, um, and they really are. They really look they perfect. You can't you can't tell that they're that they're not original. Other than that, they're just. It's almost everything's too shiny and new because it's you know 50 years later. But yeah, so that's that's how I do my paint and stripes. Is I send it out, but I curate it, and the striping is done right here in my shop. Just I'm not doing it. It's another guy.
0: Sure. Well, all right. No pun intended. But a final coat on this discussion of paint here. So if somebody wanted something painted, could they theoretically, if if it was a, say they had a tank set, battery covers, whatever, uh, could they ship it to you? You would source it through your uh, guy and and facilitate that? Or is that, you would do that? It's not part and parcel with another job.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I have done that and I do do that. Uh, so the answer is yes, I look okay. do that. Right. The, the the hard part is, is just the volume is so huge on that stuff. Like I got a lot of it in the pipeline all the time
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, that I, I never want to steal from myself in terms of my ability to do a restoration, but the option is there. Like, okay. So I don't want to be afraid of asking. Uh, it's just a matter of whether I can do it at that particular time. Uh, but I will say a follow-on to that, a final coat to your final coat is <laughs> it's, always worth, it's always worth the wait. Good. It might take six months. It might take eight months. It might take a year but it's always worth the way you'll always get a paint job that's going to blow your mind.
0: Fair enough. Uh, Two things, uh, states-related, I guess. One, I want to ask you about uh, your relationship with uh, Barrington Motor Works and Andy, uh, who's running the shop now. He actually just rebuilt a transmission for me on on my 77S. Uh, So tell me about your partnership with them.
1: Yeah. So first and foremost, Andy and I are good friends. We met when I was um, when he was transitioning into the business with with Chris and Barbara. Uh, I rode down there and, and met them all and, and spent a, spent some time with them. And um, so that's where I met Andy. And we were communicating online actually before that a little bit. But so we became for whatever reason we clicked. We became really good friends. Um, and in terms of partnership, we've just we we've kind of formally and informally agreed to help each other um, with each other's business. We're very open about our processes and our knowledge base with our suppliers. Um, we share and refer customers back and forth. We buy parts back and forth. Um, I mean, in a nutshell, we, I think we both want each other to be successful. We both regard each other as being um, having high standards in, in, in the field. Um, so we're just really transparent with each other, and, and sometimes, Darren, we just need a shoulder to cry on. So
2: you
1: know, we <laughs> yeah. usually talk. We talk once a week, usually at least, if not more. Um, and sometimes it's just a just to complain or, or whatever. But so it's a, it's, a, it's a deep friendship that that is also we're helping each other with our businesses.
0: Wow, good for you. That's uh, not something you see all the time. Uh, I, I can appreciate that. Uh, I've been in the radio business, public radio uh, business for a long time, and made it a point to reach out to other people who are in the same field uh, and work with them in ways that sometimes they'll scratch their head and they'll say, now, why why, why are you calling me about this? You know, you're kind of doing your own thing. Um, But in the long run, when you're able to have those kind of relationships, it's it works out good for the two of you, and in the end, probably uh, for you for your customer base as well. Um, like I said, I just sent a transmission to him uh, back in January, I guess, and I had part of a, a dog uh, shift gear shiftier come off. I drained the oil, and out came this little chunk about the size of my pinky nail. And I just, I called him on a whim. Um, there were some other guys I could have called to do it, but I had heard good things about him and got the transmission to him after our phone call. And I had it back in the bike in three weeks time. It's great turnaround, reasonable price, great work. So, uh, you know, kudos to Andy and I'll be, we'll be visiting with him on a future episode. So I'm glad to hear you guys have, have partnered up like that well we're going to have to leave it there we've got a lot more to talk about with George at Air Support BMW next time until then so long everybody the Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions our producer engineer is Jeff Glover I'm Darren Dorton look forward to catching up with you next time